1: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, July 1st, 2013, kicking off our sixth year of broadcasting here at Pirate Christian Radio. Where does the time go? But no time to celebrate. We got work to do. It's a short week. I'm gonna be taking vacation next week, so and part of this week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And well, all of it is really needless. And the reason why it's needless, in fact, it's flat out irrational if you think about it. Uh, The reason why it's so needless is because we have a written revelation from God. And um, what's weird to me and this is kind of a recurring theme here at Fighting for the Faith is that people don't pay attention to what it says they don't care in fact, what they do with the biblical text is it's not it's i mean it's highway robbery it's it's flat out ridiculous and Let me give you an example okay. What's the point of writing a community, you know, of actually writing something if no one's going to pay attention to you? Let's pretend that you are a uh, a parent. Now, most of you, that takes no imagination whatsoever, but of course, we have a a mixed audience here as far as ages and whether or not you're married or unmarried, whether or not you're single, whether or not you have children, you know, things like that. So. Just for the sake of argument, you know, even you children out there listening to Fighting for the Faith, let's pretend that you are an adult and uh, that you're married and you have children and you leave a note for your kids because you have to run a quick errand and you say something to the effect of, do your chores and uh, be sure not to eat any of the cake. Okay? Or don't eat any cake. That is what it says. And, And then you leave and then you come back and you find that your children have eaten cake. And you say, "What are you doing? The note I left you says don't eat cake." And you say, "Yeah, listen. Um <clears throat> you know, you're you're just being a little bit too literalistic there about what your note actually says. <clears throat> yeah, I understand you wrote don't eat cake, but what we how we interpreted is the in the sentence don't eat cake are the words eat cake. And so we decided to obey your written word and eat the cake." <clears throat> you're thinking, are there people who really do this with the Bible? Yes. There are. Yes, there are. The fact, is, a lot of people doing this all the time with the Bible, not paying attention to what it says. And as a result of it, uh, you know, you have men and women ascending to the stage on a, any given Sunday. It's not a pulpit anymore. Have you noticed that? It's, it's a music stand on a stage or a table on a stage or, you know, something on a stage. And what are stages for? Well, they're for performances. Anyway, um, anyway, so they don't ascend to pulpits anymore, but they they ascend to the uh, the music stand that's standing on the stage, and they put their iPad on it, and then they procle- uh, proceed to tell you nothing accurately about what the Bible really says and all of this is under the rubric of well we're telling you relevant life tips and stuff like that in order to make uh, the bible relevant to people and what they're doing is that, right trying to make the bible relevant to people they're not actually telling you what the bible really says they're not they're, in fact the people who are trying to make the bible relevant for whatever reason seem completely clueless as to what the bible actually says so <clears throat> yeah what's the point of having a written communication if you know from a re- written revelation from god if you're not going to actually Pay attention to the document, to the grammar, to the words, to the nouns, to the verbs, you know, all of that stuff, you you know, the stuff that matters. But here's the problem, though, is is that when somebody's not paying attention to what the the actual document says and they start telling you, well, God is this way or that way or God wants you to do this or doesn't want you to do that or here's the important thing about God and, and they're not paying attention to what the document actually says, the information that they're giving you isn't accurate. It's like uh, heresy. It's like something completely different. It's it's poison. It's rather than something helpful. Uh, you know the idea. You know you think if you were to think of scripture is, a, is in a way like a meal. I mean, what does Jesus say? What does the word say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus tells Peter three times after he restores him, "Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep." Right? And uh, <clears throat> well, if you're gonna feed Christ's sheep, what do you feed them? Answer the Word of God, the the right Word of God, the you know sound biblical doctrine, what the what the Word really says. So uh, the 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 scary thing is that there's a lot of pastors out there who are feeding Christ's sheep, but they're not feeding them God's Word because they're not rightly handling God's Word. They're feeding them poison. They're teaching them to believe falsely, and they're teaching them how to handle God's Word not correctly, but incorrectly. And the, the, over the long haul, this is going. This doesn't have good results. I shouldn't say it's got, over the long haul. It's going to have. It's it's having horrible results. And uh, what it's doing is is absolutely confusing people and causing them to believe false things. In fact, one of the false things, one of the one of the heresies that's really starting to take off, do in part because of the shallow preaching in so many uh, churches is kind of a a counter-reaction to so much of the shallow preaching being preached out there, is a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, I've been spending the last few weeks studying up on the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I may have mentioned it a couple times here at Fighting for the Faith, but we're going to actually start uh, with this week starting to lay some track, uh, a little bit of biblical groundwork, if you would, as to what is going wrong with that thing. Now, on the surface, it, the, one of the reasons why this, the Hebrew Roots movement is so appealing is because they're offering, you know, to some degree, uh, a lot the depth that the seeker-driven evangelical types are not offering. As a result of it, when people run across somebody who's trained in the Hebrew Roots movement, what they find is, is that somebody who has a profound understanding of Scripture. Uh, and and a, and a zeal for what the what the Bible really says. At least that's the argument. How it goes, but the problem is, is that the Hebrew Roots movement isn't paying attention to what the Scriptures say themselves. Despite all their zeal for rightly understanding God's Word and and trying to correctly understand what it says in context, they don't. Uh, they twist it. And so, in fact, you know, this is kind of weird. I mean, uh, Hebrew Roots folks, they might call themselves Torah observant Christians. And you're thinking, what? Yeah, I know. It's kind of frightening. And, uh, you know, if you run across somebody who's in the Hebrew Roots movement, they're going to tell you things like this. Well, if you're a Christian, you must... Go to church on Saturday. If you're a Christian, you must keep the kosher food laws. If you're a Christian, you must celebrate the Old Testament feasts and festivals. If you're a Christian, then uh, you must wear tzitzit. You're thinking, what's a tzitzit? Uh, well, tzitzit are these tassels that are on the corners of, um, of the clothing of... Uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, and uh, well, the, the in fact modern day Pharisees are the ones who wear them, but they're saying, "Oh, if you are, if you are a Christian, you must be Torah observant." And uh, what they've done, in fact, I've spent quite a bit of time unpacking and listening to their lectures on multiple topics, and w- w- you can see immediately where the problem is, and that is, is that they don't understand the difference between the different covenants. In fact. Uh, probably on tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'll give you an example. We got to lay some track first here uh, today to kind of, you know, lay a little groundwork so that we can figure out, you know, how to listen to these people. But uh, one of their major uh, leaders within the uh, Hebrew Roots movement, um, this is a guy who, you know, says he's a Torah observant Christian, young guy too. And, um, well, how do I put this? Y- you know what he does? He conflates all of the covenants in the old testament into one. And when you do that, you make a grievous error. In fact, what we're going to do, in fact, I'll tell you what we're going to do on today's episode of fighting for because I kind of keep hinting at it, um, you know, but I keep derailing myself because I want to tell you more, but there's so many things in my mind that I got to unpack this correctly. But so here's the idea. Is today we're going to uh, we got two things we're going to do in the first hour number one we have a William Tapley third eagle of the apocalypse co-profit of the end times update I have to play it I <laughs> it even though I I have to say that uh, um, yeah this is goofy you've probably been wondering um, has William Tapley the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-profit of the end times weighed in on the recent decision by the Supreme Court of the United States of America the answer is yes he has and um <coughs> Well, um, you just got to hear it for yourself to believe. Because if I told you what it is that he's going to say, you'd say, "Nah, he's not. going." And yeah, he does. Yeah. And see, it's one of those things. You just have to hear it. So we have a William Tapley, the 30 Gold of the apocalypse, co-profit of the end times update. We will be playing that shortly here um, and his, weighing in on the prophetic significance of the Supreme Court decision to um, strike down uh, Doma and uh, basically embrace uh <clears throat> homosexual marriage and uh and then what we'll do we'll take a quick break and when we come back from the break i'm going to start off by playing a segment f- um uh from a a um, white horse inn a segment from a lecture that mike horton delivered a year ago and was played on the white horse inn now we played this segment here at fighting for the faith just about a year ago not quite a year ago so Mike, 11 and a half months ago we played this segment on fighting for the faith, um, especially in rela- in relation to uh, Michael Kahn, uh, the, uh, Rabbi Kahn's book, uh, The Harbinger, which, by the way, is really bad twisting of God's word. But um, but here's the idea. I have to play the segment again because I want to get these categories into your mind biblically. When we look at the Old Testament, there's not one singular covenant. There are different categories covenants, okay? And Dr. Horton does a good job of unpacking all of this and making the distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, okay? The, the covenant made by the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. This is so crucial that you understand these distinctives, okay? And then when when Michael Horton is done, I'm going to read to you a section from uh, the book of Hebrews that fleshes this out, that Christianity is not under the Mosaic Covenant. If you are a Christian, you are not under the Mosaic Covenant. And let me say that again. If you are a Christian, you are not under the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, nobody can keep the Mosaic Covenant today. It's flat out impossible. Let's just put it that way. No one's capable of actually keeping it. Uh, And so uh, the Mosaic Covenant, by the way, type and shadow pointing us to the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is the thing that Christians are under. They're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And if if you put Christians under the Mosaic Covenant, keep this in mind, the book of Galatians makes it clear that you are obligated to keep all of the Mosaic Covenant, not some of it, all of it. So uh, I know this might seem like Christianity 101, but the problem is this, is that there are so many people who are being deceived by the Hebrew Roots Movement. And one of the reasons they're so deceived by it or easily uh, become susceptible to the deception within the Hebrew Roots Movement is because they haven't been taught practically anything. Uh, about what the Bible really teaches in the churches that they're attending. As a result of it, they are literally susceptible to some of the nastiest heresies. And, oh, of course, heresies come along offering you truth, but it's half-truth. You, you get what I'm saying? So we'll, we'll talk about That's what we're going to do today in preparation for uh, tomorrow's episode, where we're going to actually start uh, listening to and critiquing some of the things said by some of the top leaders in the Hebrew Roots movement, so that you can see what the error is, and uh, you know, it's it's really 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 bad. But uh, again, major error is is that they conflate all of the Old Testament uh, uh, covenants into one covenant, and then ignore the fact that Scripture makes it clear in the Book of Hebrews, we're not under the Mosaic covenant. We're not uh, you know we're under a new covenant the new covenant that was prophesied by jeremiah so that's what we'll do first hour second hour we've got another movie sermon uh we'll be listening to a sermon um movie sermon on the movie monsters inc (laughs) yeah yeah See, if you follow me on facebook and twitter then you know today that i was bemoaning the fact that In my podcast stream, of course, I have the world's largest collection of the worst uh, sermons ever preached in the history of Christianity, Uh, uh, more than two terabytes uh, at this point. And um, in in my collection today, I was really excited to see that there was a seeker-driven guy who decided to preach a sermon yesterday on the movie Hangover 3. Yeah, and when I <laughs> and then on this other seeker-driven church, I looked at their upcoming sermons, and uh, next week they're going to be preaching a sermon on the movie Caddyshack. So, yeah, um, th- neither one of those are sermons, by the way, but you, know, I, I, you kind of get the point. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and uh, since we're starting off with the William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and Co-Prophet of the End Times update, because I know you've been dying to hear what he has to say about the Supreme Court decision— I must warn you, though, you must brace for, you know, what, for what it is that you're about to hear. Um, <clears throat> so here's our William Tapley update music. Please assume the, uh, the crash position. It's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, boom, boom, boom. Well, there we go. Uh, it's the end of the world as we know it. That's our <clears throat> loving theme music for whenever we do a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-profit of the End Times update. And without any fanfare, without any further fanfare, in ado, here is uh, William Tapley. Like I said, brace yourself. Here we go.
0: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-profit of the End Times. Well, were you surprised at the Supreme Court ruling in favor of gay marriage? If you are a regular subscriber to my channel, you would not be surprised, because I predicted that.
1: Yeah, he called it.
0: Several weeks ago. Yes, he did. The Supreme Court believes that their rulings take precedence over the laws of God. And the reason is because... The United States government, as well as most governments in the world, are under the control of the Antichrist. Already. The Antichrist has already begun his rule, even though he is operating behind the scenes. Scripture says that the Antichrist will try to change time, laws, and seasons. Yeah, we covered that a couple weeks ago. And the very first law in the Bible, which predates even the Ten Commandments, is that marriage is between one Adam and one Eve. Now, technically that's not a law.
1: Um, it doesn't say thus say the Lord marriage equals. That's not, it's not quite said that way as a law. It's really just kind of the, the, the logical outcome of the fact that God created them male, female. They were, yeah. So marriage is, is when you know man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. This is what Jesus said, but it's, yeah, uh, basically, homosexual marriage is a complete, flat-out throwing to the ground and trampling underfoot of truth itself, at, down to its core. Uh, you know, basically saying, "Yeah, listen, I don't care what God made me physically. Yeah, I'm going to be something different than that." It's a you know, it's a trampling of you know of who God made you. Based upon the the fact that God made them male and female. And it's pretty simple to understand how the jigsaw puzzles work together. And uh, homosexuality, the jigsaw pieces don't fit. They don't work that way.
0: And I believe there are two reasons the Antichrist hates this particular law. First of all, Satan hates humanity. I agree. And Satan is the Antichrist's number one supporter. Okay, I won't quibble with that. And the reason Satan hates... Now, notice he sounds sane at the moment, okay? it's Humanity is because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Um, yes,
1: we were originally, but that uh, likeness and image has been blown out by sin.
0: And Satan hates God? Yes, he does. And he hates people? Yes, he does. And no homosexual or lesbian relationship can ever create another human being
1: too true i see again he sounds so sane here like i said don't 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 be deceived here you need to continue bracing for the crash position
0: secondly i believe the antichrist has a personal interest in making gay marriage legal and that is because he will be an active homosexual okay And we find this prophesied in those music videos, Call Me Maybe and Gangnam Style. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: We find them where? Prophesied in the videos Gangnam Style and Call Me Maybe.
0: Okay. Now don't laugh. I just did. One of the prophecies in Gangnam Style has already come true.
1: Uh, one of the prophecies in Gangnam Style. Yeah, I missed those. I, even though I know you did like what nine different videos on that.
0: And that is that the Antichrist, played by Psy, would force out Pope Benedict, who was played by the man in yellow.
1: <laughs> oh man, I, he was sounding so lucid there, you know, and then he went Fruit Loops on us.
0: And I believe the other prophecies in "Call Me Maybe" and Gangnam Style are also accurate. Let's take a look at this clip from "Call Me Maybe," where an actor plays inadvertently the Antichrist. The actor who plays Carly Rae Jepsen's love interest—he's
1: <laughs> got a—he's got a freeze frame of. Something from that Carly Rae Jepsen's video, some guy with his shirt off with a tattoo
0: that says the sky is the limit. Is a stand-in unknowingly for the Antichrist. And this tattoo which he has on his chest, the sky is the limit, is very reminiscent of what Isaiah says about the Antichrist. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, according to the Gangnam Style prophecies, the Antichrist will not only be homosexual, but he will have a relationship with the false prophet. Let's take a look at this clip. No. Another s- no. <laughs> no scene which suggests a homosexual relationship between Psy as the Antichrist and the false prophet is this pool scene where Psy emerges from the water. And, of course, in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is the beast which comes up out of the sea. (laughs) I am going to lose it. Now, you may think it is undignified of me to compare the rulings of the Supreme Court with music videos.
1: No, dignity is... (laughs) like the last thing that i was thinking about um it's just insanity this is completely irrational it's not even lucid thinking and god does not speak to us in music videos
0: and of course that is what the supreme court would like to have you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah see yeah see he's you know, william tapley's doing the exact thing that the supreme
3: court
0: doesn't want him to do This proves that he's true. But let me ask you a question. Why did the Supreme Court wait until the very last day to announce their gay marriage ruling? And the reason, of course, is because for dramatic effect. They wanted the biggest headlines for the last. They will now be able to double their speaking fees. You think I'm kidding? Oh, no. The Supreme Court is just as decadent as the rest of the American government. Another reason you should not be surprised that the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional actions by Congress and by the voters in California to oppose gay marriage is because Jesus prophesied that the end times it would be, as in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. Um,
1: Jesus said in the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage all the way up into the day when Noah entered the ark, uh, marrying and giving in marriage. As far as I know, has no reference to the concept
0: of gay marriage and whatever happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire and brimstone that rained down on those cities because of homosexuality, that same will happen to the horror of Babylon, and the horror of Babylon is primarily the United States of America.
1: All right, so there you go. William Tapley, uh, he's now weighed in to give us the prophetic significance of the Supreme Court's decision and, of course, to back up his prophetic insights. He referenced (coughs) Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe and Size Gangnam Style. You just can't make this stuff up anymore. What's the point of having a written biblical text when you can find out the inside scoop regarding the end of the world? If all you would do is pay attention to the most popular videos out there, uh, music videos at that, sorry. <clears throat> we are up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talk at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter right in there at pirate christian quick break when we come back A a replay, if you would, of a Michael Horton segment to help you kind of sort out in your your mind the ideas behind the different Old Testament covenants and and the New Covenant in the New Testament. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
2: <laughs> it's
3: Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emerging people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emerging people, like, in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people.
2: They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe sins
3: how often do you see them all the time they're everywhere
1: Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser, Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga.
3: Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend... The premier Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend. And join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest biblical worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014.
0: All
1: right, we're back. Uh, warning: the person who tells you that you have to uh, keep the Mosaic Law doesn't understand that the Mosaic Covenant is not what we're under. We're under a New Covenant. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing without it. Okay, moving along. I do not have Michael Horton update music, um, but what what you're going to be listening to for the next you know know, 18 20 minutes is uh, from a lecture uh, given last year by Dr. Michael Horton. We played this segment on the July 23rd 2012 episode of Fighting for the Faith. But I need to play it again in order to basically frame a few things in your mind. And once you kind of get the idea between the different covenants, I'll I'll, I'll circle back and spend a little bit of time reading through a portion of the book of Hebrews, which was written to uh, Jewish Christians who were wanting to go back to the uh, Mosaic uh, uh, law, to go back to the Levitical thing. And uh, not not good at all. And so we'll see what uh, the book of Hebrews uh, does in explaining Christ in our relationship to him through a new covenant, not the Mosaic Covenant. You know, you got to get these things sorted out. So here's Dr. Michael Horton. You may want to take notes on this. Here we go. So turn with, with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis 15.
4: The context of this amazing passage is the war that Abram has won uh, against uh Kings in the region And after that victory He is greeted by this mysterious figure Melchizedek We're told in The Psalms And then also again in Hebrews That Melchizedek is a a messianic figure He's the the king priest Of Salem Salem being uh, An embryonic form of Jerusalem And he's a king priest In the Aaronic system established at Mount Sinai under the law, you couldn't be a priest and a king. Melchizedek was a priest king in so many different ways. He foreshadowed Christ, who was not from the line of Aaron, but was in the order of Melchizedek. And what's significant here is that Abram addresses Melchizedek as his lord, he treats him as his great king, his emperor. Giving him a tithe, which was a a, a sign of deference. Basically, here's my tax for living on your land. And then he receives the blessing. And you only, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, receive a blessing from someone who's higher than you. So Abram was recognizing this person as his sovereign, as his king. And he was blessed by Melchizedek, who gave him... A word of blessing and a meal. God has kind of kept up with that. (laughs) Word and sacrament. That's that's, That's how he convinces Abram that he will be his blessing. And then he goes on. God goes on to talk to Abram one on one. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But now he finds himself believing. And the verb here is hashav, which does not mean to make righteous, but to declare righteous. Abraham believed God, not Abraham fulfilled the conditions of the treaty, because there are none here. It's just a promise. I am going to do this. Abram said, I don't have any conditions that I could fulfill anyway. (laughs) Okay. I believe it. And then and there, he was justified. He was declared righteous. The hearing of the promise created faith in the promise. But it's not enough for God to promise us through the word. He also gives Abram a visual ratification of his covenant promise. And the covenant ratification matches the words of the covenant. The words of the covenant are unilateral. I will, I will, I will. I am, I am, I am. You will be, you will be, you will be. And the ceremony goes with that. Why? Because in this case, God doesn't make the vassal king pass through the halves, accepting the burden of the curses if the covenant is broken. Instead, as the sun went down, a smoking fire pot passed through the halves. And this is a theophany where God walked down the aisle alone while Abram slept. And every step he took, that fire theophany that burned at Mount Sinai, that fire that consumed the children of Aaron in the holy sanctuary, that fire, that holy fire, every step he took down the aisle, he was assuming another set of curses listed in the contract. No wonder Abram found himself believing it isn't a purpose he attained or a goal he achieved, but it was a promise he received. And it was a twofold promise. It was a promise, first of all, of land and a temporal nation, but it was more than that. It was the promise that beyond that typology, there would be the reality, the fulfillment Of a universal and eternal kingdom of people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And through you and your seed, and Paul reminds us in Galatians, he said seed, not seeds. Seed meaning Christ. Through you and your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. At Mount Sinai, a different kind of covenant was made. It was still in service to this covenant of grace, but as a type and shadow. It was a temporal covenant. It was that part of that covenant that was made with Abraham that God was fulfilling at Mount Sinai. And so as a nation, Israel had a role of being a tenant, of being a lieutenant of God. A new Adam driving the serpent out of God's garden. And at Mount Sinai, the people swear the oath. God doesn't swear anything at Mount Sinai. All of these terms of the treaty are spelled out in very precise terms with 619 stipulations. Your mortgage is simpler than the Mosaic Law. If you've looked at how detailed and intricate, and it wasn't arbitrary, everything, everything there was pointing forward to Christ. It was like a bunch of mirrors and devices meant to point somehow in each way. You turn them all on at the same time and an image of Christ appears. Every mirror, every light, every laser beam had to be working properly. And it was Israel's job to be that type. Not to be the ultimate fulfillment in the land, the earthly land, but to be the type to lead Israelites and indeed the whole world to faith in the coming Messiah. But they swore the promise all this we will do. Well, and that's as it should be. It's that was that kind of a covenant. Our nation is entering into a covenant with God who has been so blessed as we have as Israelites that we have a covenant with our God, that the creator of the whole universe has made a covenant with us and that we are his people. It was gracious that God brought them into the land. It was gracious that God gave them the land. But it was theirs to keep or to lose by works. And you see that in the way that the covenant... All this we will do. They assume the curses. They assume assume all the responsibilities for fulfilling it. And then, what does Moses do? The text says, And Moses turned to them and splashed blood upon them, saying, In accordance with all the words you have spoken, all this we will do. The sacrament fit the word. The word of the covenant was all this we will do. And the sacrament was blood be on you. If you fail to keep the terms of this treaty. And in Jeremiah, as Israel did fail to keep the terms of the treaty, we read, And I will make you now, Israel, pass between the pieces. Hard words. Hosea 6-7, like Adam, you have broken my covenant. Not a faithful steward in God's house. National blessing, now national curse, because Israel hasn't kept it. And the only thing in the prophets, the only thing that keeps this story going, in spite of Israel's Consistent breaking of the covenant of law is that there is another covenant, a covenant of grace, established four centuries before that, which will be fulfilled because God himself passed through the pieces. And that's why in the prophets you read again and again and again, not for your sake, you stiff-necked people, but for the sake of the promise that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, not the one you swore that you broke at Mount Sinai, but the one I swore for the sake of my faithfulness and my covenant mercy. It won't always be like this. And Jeremiah 31 prophesies that new day, that great new covenant, and explicitly says, it will not be like the covenant that you swore at Mount Sinai. It will be a new covenant. How? Well, he goes on to say, makes it very clear. For in that day, I will give you a new heart. I will write my law on your heart. And all of this ultimately predicated on the fact that in that day, I will forgive all of your sins. I will never remember your iniquities again. That is the covenant that keeps everything moving forward. That is the covenant that Jesus fulfills in the upper room when he says, This is the blood of my new covenant. Shed for you. (laughs) For a full remission of all of your sins. Drink ye all of it. He drank the cup of wrath. So that we could drink the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing which we bless, Paul says. Is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? You see, that's, that's... He becomes the sacrificial lamb we consume. He gives himself, his body, for us. And he ratifies that every single time we gather as God's people on the Lord's Day for worship. He ratifies that publicly again in his word and in his sacrament. Here the blood is not splashed on us, it's splashed on him. He was sealing his death warrant. or rather announcing to them that his death was now sealed he passed through the pieces fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham and so that is what Paul has swimming around in his mind when he says Abraham our forefather according to the flesh accomplished nothing it is Abraham the father of faith who is our example? It is inasmuch as he was a recipient of pure grace that he is our example and father in the faith. It's as if to say, have you, have you guys really read the stories of Abraham? Maybe he could, he could boast... Before us, I mean, he was pretty significant in world history, but not before God, if you've read the passages. If you've read the story, you can't surely say that Abraham somehow stacked up a bunch of frequent flyer points for us. He had his own guilt to deal with. Surely he couldn't have created a bank account for us, but Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And then he walked through the pieces to assume our debt, to bear our curses. And therefore, Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is what's so absolutely scandalous about the gospel. It was scandalous then, it's scandalous now. People will readily believe that religion might be necessary for some people to have a more meaningful, fulfilled life. They might even reckon that there's a judgment up ahead. And in that judgment, God will accept those who are imperfect... They've tried. They've done their best. God justifies those who are on the way. God justifies those who mean well. Um, God justifies those who are are sincere and really want to do the right thing. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says God justifies the ungodly. Now, that's crazy talk. That God might justify people who have bad hair days, that... That that he might, you know, be be nice and gracious to those who haven't perfectly kept his law. People will readily grant that, especially to save their own skin. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. He says, do you realize what's going on here? Abraham was one of the ungodly too. Do you realize what's going on here? We're not talking about a contract. We're talking about a last will and testament. That's what Paul says. To the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, we're not employees working on a contract basis. We are heirs waiting for an inheritance. It's a completely different operation. Most people think that religion is about a contract. I grew up in very well-meaning, Bible-believing churches that treated salvation as a contract. If you raise your hand or you pray this prayer or you you really meant this in your heart, uh, you really, really this or, you, you know, they're the terms of it, you could even, at the back of a tract, sign your name. It's like it was a contract. And and that's how we treat Christ a lot of times. He's sort of services rendered. Uh, You know, he he promises to do a few things for us. We promise to do a few things for him. This will work out pretty well. This is not a contract. We're not employees. There's an inheritance. We're poor. He's rich. And for our sakes, he became poor. And as the writer to the Hebrews says... In order for a last will and testament to go into effect, it's generally the case that the one who made it has to die. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When the the curtain was torn, the estate went into probate, (laughs) all of the gifts were poured out. We've inherited an estate. The form of the covenant we are in is the covenant of grace, which is a last will and testament. What happens when you get a last will and testament? You go in, somebody, a lawyer, someone appointed, reads the will to you. It's not like a contract. They're not saying, now, if you do this, I'll do that. For such and such money, I will render such and such service. No, you basically don't have much to do when you're an heir. You, just, you go and you sit there and someone reads to you what you have inherited. Of course you have to do your finances. Of course you have to plan your future. But when it comes to your relationship with God, you're a recipient. You're an heir. Don't sweat. He will discipline you because he's your father. What father loves his kids and doesn't discipline them? That's just another sign of his grace, his favor that he cares for you. Don't think of him as a judge. He's not your judge anymore. If you trust in Christ, he's not your judge. He's your father. Just enjoy the, the will, reading the will, hearing the will. We live joyfully, not out of fear, not out of calculation, but with Abram finally shutting up, sitting down, hearing God speak, watching him ratify his promise to us. Verse twenty-one, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform.
1: Amen. Now let's take a look at some of the biblical passages. At least we're going to look at the Book of Hebrews, which was written to those Christians who were Jewish Christians. They were Hebrew Christians, and uh, they had they were tempted and you know and wanting to fall back to the Mosaic uh, covenant. Here's what God says. Hebrews chapter 6, I'll start at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is... where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is important. Okay? We start talking covenants here. We start talking about covenants. Um, the Mosaic covenant, who are the priests? They are only of the tribe of Levi. What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. Okay, so his priesthood is not according to the Levitical priesthood, his priest is according to the order of Melchizedek. Why? Different covenant, not the same covenant. Different covenant. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the firstborn, by translation of his name, king of righteousness though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him uh, him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham— For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, listen again, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, which is a prophecy regarding Jesus. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness And uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. You can say for the Torah made nothing perfect. This is the Mosaic covenant. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest Forever, So the oath comes from God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now this is important, and I'm going to pause here for a second. This is important because one of the things that happens in the Hebrew Roots movement is they conflate all of the covenants of the Old Testament into one covenant, and there's more than one, and they basically say that the gospel is God calling us back into covenant. No, that's not true. Christ has given us a new covenant. Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. This is what Hebrews 7:22 says. The Mosaic covenant doesn't save anybody. It points to the the new covenant, you know, which is found in the blood of Christ. Now the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once For all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point is what we are saying is this We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a ministry in the holy places in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as, uh, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, I'm going to point this out here for a second here. A couple of things. The temple in Jerusalem, the old temple, okay, which w- was basically was the, the stone version of the tabernacle, that's a copy. That's a copy um both the tabernacle and solomon's temple and then the you know the the later temple all of those they were copies of the original the original is not on earth and no human being serves there only one priest serves in the original which is in heaven that's Christ our priest our king our mediator and here it again here again are the words but Christ is the mediator he mediates a better covenant Um, Since it is enacted on better promises, that's verse six, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So verse seven makes it clear. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So we're not looking for the first covenant, we're looking for the second covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people, and they shall not teach each uh, each one his neighbor uh, and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more." In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Verse chapter eight, verse thirteen is clear. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already is, is old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These... According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation— He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he chapter nine, verse 15. Therefore he, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the Torah. Then he addressed, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Okay, notice again, uh, chapter 10, verse 9. He has done away with the first in order to establish the second. These are the covenants. First covenant is done away with. The second, the new covenant is what is established by the blood of Christ. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and the holy spirit also bears witness to us for after uh, for after saying this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days declares the lord i will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds and then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So where the forgiveness, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart In full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so you get what's going on here. This is section of the book of Hebrews makes it clear, and I mean if it wasn't already clear enough, and, you know, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take eat, this is my body which is given for you." and when he had taken the cup after supper, he said, Take drink, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins okay Christians are not under the Mosaic covenant they are under the new covenant that's the difference and anybody who comes along and says if you're a christian then you have to keep the mosaic covenant you've got to wear and you can't eat food that is unclean and you men have to wear your beards a particular way yeah um that is what we would consider covenantal confusion and there's all kinds of problems with that. And that's at the heart of the Hebrew Roots Movement, which conflates all of the covenants into one. And proclaims that the good news is that God is calling us all back into covenant. Actually, Christ is, uh, is, calls us into the new covenant. And he and his flesh and his blood are the sacrifice of that new covenant. And he is the priest our priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, in that new covenant. Now, all of this is, you know, like I said, preparation for what's coming tomorrow on Fighting for the Faith. Um, so, you know, stay tuned. We'll be talking more about the Hebrew Roots Movement and listening to some of their teachers as, so that you can hear for yourself. But I needed you to prepare you for all of this first biblically so that you don't get confused so that then when you hear the air, you'll go, oh, wow, I, I get what's going wrong there. You get what I'm saying. So, all right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon on the movie Monsters, Inc. It's not really a sermon, but uh, we'll review it
2: here. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you.
1: Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash Cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga.
2: was i just doing you might ask well i just conquered the outer rim planet of pico pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon well i just did in this video game but how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache it's quite simple really it's because i wear gunners when i'm rocking these babies i'm unstoppable They're not limited to just games mind you oh no I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
1: We're back. Sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, another movie sermon. It's that time of the year. I loathe it too. So I thought I would subject, uh, subject you to the worst of the worst. <laughs> Thinking, That's not fair. Yeah, I know. I don't work on fairness here at Fighting for the Faith. All right. Let's do this right. Here we go. The Bad, The Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing uh, service. Today's sermon comes to us via onechurch.tv in Clarksville, Tennessee. Chris Edmondson presiding. The name of said um, sermon is entitled, At the Movies, and they will be preaching on... <clears throat> the movie Monsters Inc. Which, how old is that movie? <laughs> I mean, it, uh, anyway, I don't even want to tell you anything about this sermon except for <sighs> grab some popcorn, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers will help, especially when we get to the line about kitty. <clears throat> anyway, let me kill the music. So, without any further ado, here is Chris Edmondson and his summertime movie on the movie sermon on the movie Monsters, Inc. Here
2: we go. Since the very first bedtime, all around the world, children have known that once their mothers and fathers tucked them in and shut off the light, that there are monsters hiding in their closets waiting to emerge. But what they don't know is it's nothing personal. It's just their job. Oh.
3: There's nobody here huh? there's, there's no kid. there's supposed All to be right, a kid. there's want, no don't kid don't, to schedule.
2: Panic. I'm panicking because well, well, there's a total know, lack know. of kids here. let's just check the schedule. It's very embarrassing
3: yeah. Now let me see. Nine o'clock yep, nine o'clock. Boy's bedroom. Boys bedroom. Out of magnolia?
2: <sighs> magnolia give me that. It's Mongolia. Mike, does this look like Mongolia to you? Yeah, yeah, well, you kind of. Well, okay, you remember the fifth grade? When you spent all your time passing notes to Susie Boyles? Loved it. The rest of us were studying geography. This is not Mongolia. Uh, Would would you listen to this? Blame it on the little guy. How
3: original. He must have read the schedule wrong with his one eye!
2: Right. Come on, I don't take it personally. You were thinking that. Come on, I. don't be so that. sensitive. Come on, buddy, little Blinky.
3: Don't, Who's don't your do buddy? that. Who's you. Don't make me like you. I don't want to like on, you come now. On. All right. <laughs> hey, guess which planet I am. Huh? Come on, look. Guess right. which planet I am.
2: Okay, I'm going to go back to the break room before all the donuts are gone.
3: Hey, don't you even get it, you big throw rug? Oh,
2: nice doggy.
3: <laughs> nice Big doggy. Sally! Sally, open the door! Open the door!
5: Starting Monsters University and Monsters Incorporated today, my son, Walt, who's 14 years old, this was his very first movie he saw at the movie theater on the big screen. And I remember kind of opening up and, and, and as the credits are going and going, I think this may have been a bad idea. Because it can be a little scary. In fact, here is the opening scene of this movie that sets up the entire monster world. Y'all watch this.
3: Good night, sweetheart. night, mom. Sweet, tight kiddo.
1: So already the question I have is will their bible reading be length, l- l- lengthier in time longer in time than than the amount of time they're going to spend playing movie clips <laughs> I don't think so but we'll see Just a reminder, this is supposed to be a sermon. You feel closer to Jesus already? I mean, I, I feel like I'm so much more like him now after watching this. Uh, never mind. Simulation terminated. Simulation
2: terminated. Simulation
3: terminated. Simulation terminated. Simulation terminated. All right, Mr. Vile,
2: is
1: it? Uh, my friends call me Flem. Uh
2: huh. Mr. Vile, can you
0: tell me what you did wrong?
1: I fell down?
0: No, no, before that. Can anyone tell me Mr. Biles' big mistake? Anyone?
4: (coughs) Let's take a look at the tape.
0: Here we go. Uh,
2: right... There. See? The door. You left it wide open. And, um... Uh, And leaving the door open is the worst mistake any employee can make because...
3: Um... It could let
2: in a draft. It could let in a child. Oh, Mr. Water There is nothing more toxic or deadly than a human child. A single touch could kill you. <laughs> Leave a door open and a child could walk right into this factory, right into the monster world. I won't go in a kid's room. You can't make... Don't you feel more sanctified now that you've seen or
1: really heard this movie clip about children being toxic? Wait, you're going in there. Oh, this is deep theology here, really deep.
2: Eric, because we need this. <laughs> Our city is counting on you to collect those children's screams. Without scream, we have no power. Yes, it's dangerous work, and that's why I need you to be in charge. Your- you know, this is just like that passage in the
1: Bible where it says. Um, Yeah, I I can't figure out how this relates to
2: the Bible. For best, I need scarers who are confident, tenacious, tough, intimidating.
5: What's so funny about Monsters Incorporated is that the entire premise of this movie is that the monster's job is to go in and to scare children that there are two distinct worlds. There's the monster world, where everything's kind of uh, turned on its head, and everything's kind of scary, and you get all these furry, weird monsters. But then you also have the human world. And through this doorway they're able to walk through, they can go, and the monster's job is to go and to make kids scream. And if they scream, um, that actually fuels the monster world, and they actually collect these screams in these scream canisters. Now again, as I was watching and watching some of the clips, and especially with my four-year-old son that I took for the movies for the first time, just seeing this big screen and all of these kind of scary things, I'm thinking, "Wow, I hope he doesn't. Um, I hope he doesn't get like, too scared because if he does, I'm going to hear about it from mom, and I'm going to be up all night soothing this kid." Right? But he didn't, and everything was fine. Now, here's what's so thing about this: I, I love this entire movie because it kind of starts off scary but then it gets funny and and you realize at the end of the movie there's nothing to be afraid of
1: the monsters are more for- oh i'm so glad you told us that because i'm sure none of us have had an opportunity to figure that out in the last 10 years afraid
5: of the humans and of course the humans are afraid of the monsters but here you see boo who's really not afraid of anyone and i love this movie because it's all based around this idea of fear and that's what we're going to be talking about today as we look at Monsters Incorporated. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we dig into the text.
1: What- you're going to dig into a text based on Monsters Inc. Can't wait to see you do it. What are you afraid of? Um, demons and bad preachers.
5: What is kind of like your casual thing that you're afraid of? So here's what I'm to-
1: uh, Pastors who twist God's word and send people to hell.
5: ask you to do i'm gonna ask you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what is one of your fears all right do that now
1: we'll fast forward here what is one of your fears Uh, i have no idea what this has to do with the bible but well we'll play along just to be nice
5: all righty let's let's hear how many of y'all raise your hands if you're afraid of spiders wow All right, absolutely, okay. How many of you, you said you were afraid of snakes? Anyone? All right, cool. How many of y'all, you're afraid of clowns? All right, cool. All right. Uh, Somebody else, name me one of your fears. Your wife. Hey, you better not go home. I'm just telling you. So you might want to hang out at my house tonight. I'm just telling you. Somebody else. Pastors, yeah, you don't need to come home with me either, Mr. Tom Henry. What? Heights? Bridges? All right, very good. Anyone else? Needles, I'm with you. No one likes any needles, all right? Um, I tell you, then let me ask you another question and don't answer this out loud because all of us, we have phobias, we have fears, fears of our wife, fears of needles, fear of pastors. Though. Well, in
1: this case, you don't need to fear the pastor because I don't think he will. The, I doubt he is one.
5: Though I, you and I need to talk. Um, <laughs> and my mama. All right. Yeah. If you knew my mama, you might be afraid of her, too. So just saying she's actually a very beautiful woman. Love you. Anyway, what is the greatest fear you've ever had? Don't, don't say it out loud. What is the greatest fear that you have? Think about that. What are you really afraid of? I know. Again, I know we have the normal fears, snakes, heights, and all that stuff. But what is it, when you really think about it, has paralyzed you or can paralyze you in fear? Maybe it's fear of losing a child. Maybe it's the fear of being alone. Maybe it's the fear of a broken marriage. Um, Maybe it's the fear of not being able to provide for your family. But what is your greatest fear? Now, let me ask another question. What would you attempt to do if you were not afraid? Let that sit for just a sec. What would you attempt to do if you were not afraid,
1: what I, I don't know, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ, man's fall into sin, his vicarious death on the cross for our sins or any biblical text?
5: What venture would you run after if you knew you would not fail? You see, I believe that God has some amazing things for us, promise for us. But in order for or, in order for us to experience God's goodness, we're going to have to face our fears.
1: And the reason why... I... In order to to experience God's goodness, I have to face my fears. I thought I needed to be forgiven for my sins.
5: I love this movie. Is This movie is all about fears and what you get to the other side of your fears. They're really not all that scary. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture, First Samuel chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at a guy by the name of Jonathan.
1: Uh, okay.
5: And we're going to be able to see Jonathan kind of coming up against his fears. And as you're turning there, you're welcome to go on your uh, smartphone, go to UVersion, or we give away free Bibles here at one church. First Samuel chapter 14, it's kind of in the beginning of your Bible. Let me give you some context because the nation of Israel finally has a king. His name, the very first king that Israel ever had, his name was King Saul.
1: Why do I feel like we're going to be experiencing Narsgesis here? That's narcissistic Is reading yourself into the text.
5: And King Saul was not that great of a king. He really had no heart towards God. But King Saul's son, Jonathan, was a really good dude. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to see Jonathan and the type of gestalt that this guy has, the type of heart and personality and attitude that Jonathan had the king's son. First Samuel chapter fourteen, verse one. I'm actually going to start the last verse of chapter thirteen, and here's what the Bible says: The pass at Mikmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. Bum, bum, boom. Right?
1: Okay, that tells me we're in the middle of a story here. Hmm. I mean, the Philist. How on earth is somebody supposed to? based on these seeker-driven sermons, ever come to a proper understanding of what the Bible says? You skip over to this passage over here in the Old Testament, hopscotch to this verse over in the New Testament. Next week you'll get three verses, one from Proverbs, one from uh, Amos, and then one from uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 3, or something like that. How on earth is anybody who's exposed to this kind of preaching, ever supposed to come up with an accurate understanding of what the Bible actually says.
5: The army is in the, the Israelite territory, and they are now guarding a pass, a very important pass, that they cannot get through. They have literally divided the nation of Israel. One day, look at this, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines, these are the bad guys, have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Jonathan is not talking about what he's doing. He's just going to go out and do it. How I many of y'all know a lot of people who are a lot of talk but no action? All right? Jonathan was the exact opposite. He was very little talk but a whole lot of action. I prefer people like that. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs. And these rocky cliffs were called Bozez and Senna. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Now look at this, I love this verse, verse 6. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Can we all say that together? Perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps the Lord will help us. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has what? Many warriors or only a... I love that. I mean, I love... We're going to come back to this verse because this verse, verse 6, is really where we're going to be landing for today. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can hinder the Lord whether you have a little... Or a lot. Look at verse 7. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. Man, this is it just such a cool story because Jonathan didn't let his fears dictate his decisions. His desire to advance the kingdom, so to speak, was greater than his fear of failure. Jonathan was not playing defense here, he was playing what? Offense. He, he courageously
1: Now, I want to make an important distinction here, okay? Are we called to do the same exploits as Jonathan, or are we called to have the same faith in the same God that Jonathan trusted in? See, here's the deal. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you're supposed to perform these exact same kinds of exploits. that You've got to do the same thing. The reason why Jonathan didn't have fear is because of his faith in the one true God. So if you want to, quote, be like Jonathan here, the only way that you can really be like Jonathan here is by having the same faith that Jonathan has. So many times in these sermons, we're called to, you know, oh, they set an example for us. Now you go do the same thing. No, no, no. Go believe the same God that Jonathan believes in. And yes, he is God. And yes, he is almighty and he is sovereign and he is powerful. And he will see you through whatever trials and t- tribulations come your way. And you can trust him the same way Jonathan trusted his God. You see, that's a different message altogether, what I'm describing. Let's see if uh, <clears throat> Edmondson here figures that out.
5: climbed the cliffs at McMash. He picked a fight. He picked a fight with a superior force of greater number than him because it's just him and his armor-bearer. Now, even if you had public school education, how many does that give us? Two. Exactly right. It's two against an army. All right? I mean, now, here's what I like. I, I usually normally read the New Living Translation, and right above the New Living Translation, there's a caption that says, it's called, Jonathan's Daring Plan. This entire section is part of the reason why I love Jonathan's daring plan is because Jonathan makes me feel better about my bad ideas. I mean, think about this. This has to be the worst military strategy ever. I mean, if you read the next few verses, you discover that Jonathan's plan is basically this. Let's expose ourselves to the enemy in broad daylight and let's go up against them because they've got the high ground. And by the way, there's an army, and we've got how many? Two. Here are some pictures uh, of the cliffs. I've actually been there. One is called Bozaz. One is called Senna. And here, I don't know if you can see these. Go back if you would. Uh, If these little dots right here, those are people. So they are climbing up. These cliffs, and, and the Philistine army is, is up there. And you can go to that next picture if you like. It's a little bit broader view of it. But these are massive cliffs, and they're in broad daylight, and it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. The dude who's probably carrying Jonathan's shield is going up against the entire Philistine army in broad daylight. Man, that's interesting. And, and a lot of other this Jonathan comes up with a sign. Some of you, I mean, have you ever, and I'm going to raise my hand first. Have you ever asked God for a sign to do something? I have all of us. Give me a sign, right? Let's look at Jonathan's sign. This is what he says. He says this in verse 10, but if they say, come up to us we will climb up because that will be our sign that the lord has given them into our hands now okay i'm sorry but if i'm gonna ask for a sign here i'm gonna ask for the exact opposite basically what he's saying if god if you want us to come up with us when when we start climbing up if they say come on boys then we're gonna go now look, that's just jacked Let me tell you the type of sign I would ask for. If they came down to us, that'll be our sign. Or even better yet, God, if you let them fall off the cliff, that'll be the sign of letting me go up. But no, Jonathan's plan is far more dangerous and difficult and daring than that. Now, I'm going to be honest. When I read these verses, I I don't know. uh, You know, I love watching movies. And and when I read these verses, and um, I think, you know, I don't really see myself as Jonathan. And one of my favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. And I I like that movie because, you know, you always, you you see, um, you see Tom Hanks' character, you see Matt Damon's character, and then you see this guy, his name is Oppum. Anybody remember Oppum? He's the kind of coward at the end who does nothing. And you always wonder, which one would you be in a firefight. You know, when I see myself in these verses, I really don't know. I don't see myself as Jonathan. And let me give you just some illustration in my past to let you know why I'm not Jonathan. About two years ago, two or three years ago, um, we got all of our staff together and we decided to go to Linden, Tennessee. Very small town. And one of the things that we do every November is we get together and we planned out the sermon calendar for the entire year. So here at one church, we believe in team-based ministry, and we ask our elders, we ask our small group leaders, hey, what are some of the things that we need to talk about next year? And we plan out the entire year's worth of sermons so I know what I'm going to be preaching this December, okay? So it's a three-day meeting. Now, for some of you who don't like meetings, I know you're thinking that is like the third Gehenna, right? So I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to break up these three days of meetings? So I came up with a great idea. Let's play paintball. i never played paintball. I'm like, it's going to be fun. So uh, we get our staff together and we brought some other guys, uh, leadership. I, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble when the, one of the guys that came with us, this army dude says, okay, listen, um, it's shoot, move and communicate. And I'm like, whoa, whoa what a L- little bit slower. Right? Because I, I don't have an ounce of army in me. I'm like John Candy in stripes. Okay? Just call me Ox. Uh, and, 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 and Okay, shoot, move. What was the third? You know, again. So we're, we got our paintballs, you know, our guns, and we got our mask and all this stuff. And uh, I noticed nobody's wearing shorts. Yeah, I, I knew there was a problem somewhere. So anyway, so, you know, they blow the little thing and we kind of gum up against one another. And I don't, I, I kind of make a big target, you know, I'm trying to roll and duck and move and, you know, and all this stuff. And I, I mean, I, I got shot and, you know, you kind of get out. And I'm like, dang, that hurts, you know, and I'm, you know, so I get down there and now I'm starting.
1: What does this have to do, number one? with the story from 1 Samuel 14. Number two, um, <laughs> with the movie uh, Monsters, Inc., not that he should be preaching on that anyway. What is this?
5: The fake getting shot. You know, I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, right? I mean, it's like, what in the world? And I remember one of the guys, I got wise. I says, okay, let me tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to cover you. That means I'm gonna cower in fear behind this little thing while you go out and get shot. All right? So there's a reason why you don't want me in your platoon. I'm just telling you. All right. So anyway, we go through this and I realized that I, I'm not Jonathan. I'm not. And Jonathan
1: That's a good thing for you to realize.
5: Jonathan, I mean, these are not just fake paintball bullets or be I mean, these were real this is a real conflict here.
1: Um, paintball is still a game.
5: So, I, I, the reason why I, I, I like this verse is, you know what, you know, I, I don't really see myself in there. Some of you, you don't see yourself in there as well because our fear gets in the way. So
1: No, because you shouldn't be finding yourself in there anyway. The story isn't about you. You weren't there.
5: Here's the million dollar question as we look at this passage. What motivated Jonathan to climb the cliff? What gave him the courage to go on the offense and how did he know it was God's will? You know, I think it's impossible to know exactly everybody's thoughts, especially because it's thousands of years ago, but verse six really does reveal Jonathan's attitude. Let's look at it again. Perhaps the Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle Whether he has many warriors or only a few, perhaps the Lord will help us. I love that attitude. Now, let me stick just a personal conviction here. I think what we have lacking... Okay,
1: this isn't... Jonathan is not expressing an attitude. This is a confession of his faith in the one true God. It's different than an attitude
5: and most of our churches today across america is not knowledge you see some of you you're thinking okay i'm just kind of a brand new christian or maybe you're not even a christ follower this is like your first time here you're kind of like kicking the tires of christianity i'm so glad you're here but many of us we think you know what if i knew more then i would do more and let me tell you that is exactly the opposite because many of us, we, keep, we want to keep on learning and learning and learning, but we're already educated beyond our level of obedience.
1: Mm, standard line from the seeker-driven movement. This is their justification for not doing in-depth biblical preaching because you're educated way beyond your obedience. Anyway, um, now we know we're dealing with somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about.
5: You want to know what I think is the, the biggest thing lacking in most of our churches? And it's the four-letter word, not that one. But the other four-letter word called guts. Guts.
1: So what's missing in our churches is guts. Actually, what's missing in the sermon is Christ. Uh, That would explain a lot.
5: Good old-fashioned guts to live a big faith, to climb a cliff, to engage the enemy, and realize that we are involved in something in a matter of life and death, and we are called to live courageously, even dangerously, for the cause of Christ. Now, here's the good news. Uh,
1: how? Um, we're not experiencing open persecution that will result in our deaths at the moment here in the United States. So what does that look like?
5: I don't think in most scenarios, none of us are going to be, have our lives on the line when it comes to Christianity. But passivity is not an option. And I think God is calling us to play offense
1: and this story. You mean offense by, you know, going out and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So that sinners hear that they're a sinner and that they're confronted with their sins and understand that there's mercy won by Christ and that God is offering them full and complete pardon and reconciliation through the shed blood of Jesus? You mean like that? Or going and making disciples by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Is that what you mean? It inspires me to no end. It tells me that the
5: will of God is not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan. In fact, that's our big idea today. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan
1: yeah um Genesis, and'm sorry, first Samuel 14 doesn't teach this
5: You see, many of us, if you've grown up in church, you've heard you know what if you know if you do things God's way and if you give your heart and your life to him, you're going to go to heaven, you're not going to go to hell when you die, and that is exactly true. But that is really where our relationship with God begins and ends. We think of something as something for eternity. And yes, it does have an eternal impact, but a relationship with God and the will of God can start and change your life right now. Totally. And it could-
1: Yeah, I understand that. That you, know, that, you know, I bear fruit then in keeping with repentance, you know, stuff like that, right? Sanctification, it's actually been taught in Christianity for millennia.
5: It could be a daring thing. God is calling you to a daring plan, not an insurance plan. Let me tell you
1: a daring plan again, what do you mean?
5: Let me tell you something. God never calls us to play it safe
1: play it safe regarding what God wants me to play it safe when i 'm driving down the highway. Um, since it's against the law to speed and to maneuver in and out of traffic at a rapid rate uh, because it could cause an accident, God wants me to play it safe when I'm driving down the highway. Um, God doesn't want me to uh, basically throw away all of my resources by not playing it safe and deciding to gamble my money away. What are you talking about? God doesn't want us to play it safe. In what sense? God never
5: calls us. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, you know what? I just want you to be comfortable.
1: And nowhere in the Bible does it say God demands that you be daring.
5: You know, if 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 you're just saying I'm comfortable, then let me tell you, I can pretty much tell you, you are probably out of the will of God.
1: Based on what text, what biblical text says you're out of the will of God if you're experiencing comfort in your life?
5: You show me in the Bible where God called a person, you know what, just, just just, sit on this couch. Just stay here. It's just, prop your
3: feet up.
1: Again, this is a red herring. This isn't even an argument. Exegete it from a biblical passage. Show me where God demands that I climb a cliff and do what Jonathan did.
5: No, he called Abraham out of his comfort zone to go to a, a place he didn't even know he was going. He called Moses out of his comfort zone to lead a people that didn't even really like him out of
2: Egypt.
1: You you see all of these different stories and the, yeah, I do. And yet I don't see a single command that says, therefore go and be daring like so. And so or such and such that in order for that to be God's will for my life, there needs to be a command that tells me that, but I can tell you a, you a completely different command. And it's actually found in Scripture. Are you ready? It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's what it says. Verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may be, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Yep. Here's a command. Ready? <clears throat> aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. No big... Yeah, in fact, this passage flat out contradicts the things you're saying. And you'll notice that in uh, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 14, there is no command that says, therefore, you must be daring and you better not be comfortable or you're not inside the will of God.
5: Bible, where God is not calling people to comfort, he's calling them out of comfort, out of complacency. And I think more often than not, God's will, the will of God will involve a daring decision, a
1: difficult... Mm-hmm. Again, what Bible verse says this? Decision. Uh, what passage says that? It's sometimes even a dangerous decision. What passage says that that's what we're to expect? But let- now it might happen. But where am I commanded so that if I'm not, if I don't have that, I'm outside the will of God? Let
5: me just say this.
1: If, by the way, uh, what is it called when you are acting contrary to the will of God? That's called a sin. You know, Christ died for sin. So if you're not experiencing daring and courageous and all this kind of stuff. You're outside the will of God. That means you're sinning.
5: If it's God's will, it may be a dangerous decision from your point, from your viewpoint, but from God's standpoint, that is the most secure place you can ever be. I mean, you may, from your perspective, it looks fearful to you. But from God's perspective, he's got this. Man, I love this because you see this in this movie, Monsters Incorporated. I mean, all of us, you, we've, if you've had a kid, if you've grown up as a child, and if you've been around children, you know, they're scared of stuff in the dark. They're scared of stuff in, in, the, in the doorways, in the closets, underneath the bed. If you have a teenager, you should be scared from what's underneath that dude's bed. I'm telling you, just saying. Probably stuff growing down there. But you know what? Fear is never rational. It's always Irrational. And we know when you're talking to a two-year-old, hey, son, all right, there's nothing to be scared of. We're talking about it rationally for them, but they're not rational. And you know from the outside, there's nothing in the closet.
1: But to a two-year-old. Yeah, now what's not rational is the fact that he's telling you that it's God's will that you do daring things without a biblical text that says that that's what God wills for you. Weird, huh?
5: There's something big in there. Let me tell you, it's that same way with God. You know, we get so scared about what's behind the doors of life and God's going, I got this. I'm your dad. I am your parent, the parent that loves you. I've got this. I love that. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan. And I love this. So what's going to happen is this. Jonathan is going to go on this daring plan And one daring decision was enough to shift the momentum to create a tipping point. Look what it says in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle continued to rage even beyond Beth-Avon. So who saved the day? I'm sorry, let's say that all one more time. Who saved the day? The Lord saved the day. Now, where's Jonathan in this? Jonathan is doing the Lord's plan. Let me tell you, if you're doing God's plan, number one, he's going to get the glory. And he's got this. He's got this. Let me tell you, can I suggest that the church needs more daring people with daring plans like Jonathan? I like this dude. uh, The 20th century missionary, his name is C.
1: Yeah, keep in mind that Jonathan did not actually act until he knew with absolute certainty that it was God's will for him to do so. Um, and again, there's no command in this passage that says, "Therefore, thou go thou and do exactly the way Jonathan did."
5: T. Stud. Everybody say Stud. Come on, baby. All right. Here is, here is a quote of C.D. Stud. Some people want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of the gates of hell. C. T. Stud. Can I? You can quote me on this next one. I think our church needs more studs. Right? We need more people with this attitude.
1: Man, we do. When do we start believing that God wants us to? Again, no, we don't need people with that kind of attitude. If you really are going to look at somebody like Jonathan as an example, or Abraham as an example, or Moses as an example, well, Hebrews chapter 11 makes it clear why exactly these men were examples. It's not because they had an attitude, it's because they had faith and trust in the one true God, and really, really believed that their God, the one true God, would see them through. Hebrews eleven one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household." By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. You see, the idea here is, okay, no one was called to do the exact th- same thing as anybody else. Each had their calling by God to do his will. Each did the will of God by faith, not an attitude but by faith, that is something completely different. And because uh, Chris Edmondson here doesn't understand that, he thinks that the, that Jonathan was just expressing a, a, a favorable attitude, that he had a positive attitude that we can emulate. No, no, no. In order for us to be able to perform the exploits that God has called us to, whatever they may be, especially in our calling to work quietly with our hands, all of that is done with the same faith that all the patriarchs did because every one of them or had every one of them had faith that's the same thing that we have we have faith so trust in god the way jonathan trusted in god and yes you can trust him in the middle of harrowing situations but keep in mind okay th- this is important here that when Jesus was tempted by the devil, one of the temptations that Jesus experienced at the hands of the devil was for him to do something daring, okay? Uh, to, to, the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, throw yourself off the temple, for it is written that God will uh, you know, send his angels to, you know, so that he wouldn't strike his foot against a stone or something like that, right? The, the devil misquotes the scripture. But Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So that's the other end of this. Don't you be doing something to prove to God that you're being daring, because what you maybe end up doing is putting God to the test. And when you do that, well, you incur incur his displeasure and wrath.
5: To play it safe and have safe places and to do easy things. Where do we get that? It's not from the Bible. I think we make a false assumption about the will of God. I think we assume that it should get easier the longer we follow Christ.
1: I think you're making a false assumption about the will of God that somehow you can divine it apart from the written word.
5: And I'm going to tell you, there are some dimensions that do get easier. Once you, the longer you follow Christ, the more you start reading God's word, it will eventually start becoming natural to you. But let me tell you, there are some parts that get harder, that get more difficult. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit prompts us to sometimes do some really crazy things. Like adopts a child or be a foster child to a broken child. Or to actually go and to love our enemies. To be able to get involved and dirty with somebody's life. Man, I think spiritual growth prepares us for more dangerous missions. To do more daring things for Christ. It shouldn't
1: get less adventurous. It should get more- Again, what biblical text says this? You are creating your own theology from what you think things should be like based upon something you may or may not have actually experienced in your life, and that is no creator of Christian doctrine or dogma. Your life experiences do not determine what is or is not Christian faith, Christian doctrine, or defines what the will of God is for other Christians. If you're going to say that this is what God wants us to do, show me a clear passage that commands that this is what we do.
5: More adventurous. But if you ask the average Christian there, wait a minute. I'm sorry, what did you say? I was asleep. We are so comfortable. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, We are so comfortable that it would take almost God with a two-by-four to get us out of our comfort zones. And maybe if you're struggling with some stuff right now, it may be the two before, because God is not wanting you to be comfortable. He's not wanting you to just exist. He's wanting you to thrive and live and for your spiritual life to be an adventure, not to be boredom.
1: Perhaps the Lord. Again, what passage of scripture says that God wants our spiritual lives to be an adventure? Here's the deal, dude. You're actually adding to the word of God. And last time I checked scripture in several places, Deuteronomy and the book of Revelation, adding to scripture incurs a curse on the one doing so.
5: The Lord will act on our behalf. I love that. I mean, we should, our church should be like that. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. So we spend, but many of us, that's not our view, is it? We view we do perhaps the Lord won't come through. And we spend our entire life at the bottom of the cliff looking up, and our fears are holding us hostage. I tell you, I wonder if that's the reason why many of us are bored with our faith. The scariest thing in Monsters Incorporated happened. A child has been let loose in the monster world. And through this entire movie, Sully, the dude with the polka dots, the big one, right? He, real, he begins to realize that his biggest fear, his fear of children, really is kind of a silly fear. The kids aren't poisonous. Uh, kids, uh, uh, their screams are good fuel, but you know what? Their laughter is super fuel. And that's what the entire movie is about. I want to just talk corporately as uh, to us as a church, just to say this: that perhaps the Lord will be, uh, will be, will act on our behalf.
1: That we need to stop playing defense and play offense. Now, let me. So you're just going to test God? You're just going to yeah, you're going to put God to the test without a clear and certain word from Him? You're just going to go out and be daring? This is utterly foolish.
5: you, let me give you the flip side of this coin, and then I got to end because I'm going long. Um, look what happens. What's happening with Jonathan's dad Saul? Let's look at this. Verse 2. Jonathan is charging the gates of hell, if you will, up Mechmash, and look what Saul the king is doing. Verse 2. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. I mean, what a contrast! to Jonathan. I think Saul, uh, what Saul didn't do is just as significant as what Jonathan did do. His son is climbing cliffs and engaging the enemy. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree on the outskirts of Gibeah, popping pomegranate seeds.
1: Yeah. And you'll notice that uh, Saul is not held up as somebody who had faith, but as basically who, one who behaved and acted like an unbeliever and bore fruit in keeping with his unbelief. That's why he displeased God. Remember Hebrews eleven six. 6, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Who wasn't pleasing to God? Saul was. So who had faith in this situation? Jonathan did.
5: In Chillaxin. What's wrong with this picture? Well, the Philistines control the pass, and the leader of the army of Israel, Saul, should have been the one fighting back instead of kicking back. And some of you, you're kicking back, and you need to be fighting back. Oh,
1: man. Now we're – pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Yep, yeah, that's right. Have you been spending your days doing what the normal, hardworking uh, mother, father, dad, worker does, you know, going to work every day, paying the bills, taking care of your children, helping them with the homework, you know, that kind of stuff? Oh, well – you're not being daring enough. You're outside the will of God. You need to have an adventure, and you're displeasing God because of your lack of adventurousness.
5: Some of you are just like, you know what? Somebody, can, somebody just get me a, a, a glass of sweet tea. And God is going, no, no, no. You go and you charge the gates of hell. But many of us are like Saul. Saul let other people fight his his battles. He let his son Jonathan, and we're going to see in, in a couple of chapters later, in chapter 17, David is even fighting his battles. And Saul, the king, who stood head and shoulders above everybody else, he's just, just sitting back, sipping on a straw. Some of you, I did that, and you thought it was something else, didn't you? Come on now. And that's what separates one church from every other church right there. You know, as I close today, I I just, I think there's a little bit of Saul in each of us. There's a little bit of Saul in each of us that when we look at, we we probably don't see ourselves as Jonathan We see ourselves as Saul, but you know what? I truly believe that we need to pray like it depends upon God and work like it depends upon you. Some of you, you need to get, Uh,
1: no, that's absolutely double-minded get up and you need to do something and if you don't do anything this is so profound what am i supposed to do exactly because i can look at passages in scripture that tell me clearly what the will of god is for me and i don't have to guess and you know what they they include me being a good husband a good dad you know a good employee you know things like that and i know i'm doing the will of god this other stuff you're talking about i don't know what you're talking about what adventure
5: it's not gonna happen right Get up and do something. At the end of the day, God is not going to say, well said, my good and faithful servant. He's not even going to say, well thought, my good and faithful servant. He's going to say what?
1: Well done. And And what am I supposed to be doing? Show me from scripture what I'm supposed to be doing. In order to be done, you got to do something. Why don't you then take them to the law passages and show them all the things they're supposed to be doing and then show them that they're not doing them. Then that will create a real quandary, won't it? What are you going to do in a situation like that? You might have to preach the cross.
5: Right? And some of you, you think the idea of being a good Christian is to sit back for 70 minutes and listen to somebody talk and do a band. And let me tell you, I think that is not the, this is not the essence of Christianity.
1: This is like us getting in. Well, I agree. Uh, Preaching on the movie Monsters, Inc., it's not only not the essence of Christianity, it has nothing to do with Christianity. And this isn't a Christian sermon.
5: In a huddle, in a football game, right? When you see everybody getting in a huddle in a football game, you know they're not just going to stay in the huddle forever, right? The whole purpose of getting in the huddle is to do something. It's to go out and take the ball across the touchdown line. And then to go... Right? I mean, you got to do something.
1: No, not just something. God's word tells me clearly what God wills for me to do as well as what I should believe. It's both.
5: All right. I'm never going to do that again. Just saying. My point is this. We get so excited about the huddles and then we choose to do nothing about what we learned in the huddle. This is not Christianity. When you leave today, that's Christianity. It's Monday.
1: It's again, false dichotomy. And what passage says that again? Oh, yeah, it doesn't. You are adding to God's word.
5: It's Tuesday. It's Wednesday at 9 o'clock in the morning when you get on your job and you can't stand your boss. And it's Thursday when you go out. And it's 5 o'clock somewhere, but the 5 o'clock that you're at, you're actually telling somebody about Jesus Christ. I mean, it's Friday night when everybody else of all your friends may be going out and getting wasted. But you say, you know what? I'm going to be their designated driver. And hopefully they're going to see from my lifestyle, by what I don't do and what I do, that Jesus is real. That we do something and it's dangerous
1: and it's daring because God's will is... How is it dangerous and daring to be a designated driver?
5: <sighs> it's not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan. Some of, some of you, you, need the most daring thing you could do is start reading your Bible. I, I, let me tell you, I, I got a Facebook message this past Tuesday at 7 o'clock in the morning.
1: So far, this is the only thing I agree with. Reading your Bible would be a very good idea, because if you do that and you go to one church, you'll realize that Chris Edmondson doesn't know what he's talking about, and he doesn't preach the word, and you'll go and find a real church.
5: From a soldier who's living in South Korea. He's discouraged. He isn't hanging out with Christians. He isn't reading his Bible. And the best way he can play offense, and if you're watching right now, you know who I'm talking about, is to start reading and getting people, getting around people who are reading God's word. Some of you are like, well, that's not very deep. Let me tell you, the, the biggest things in life aren't deep, right? Let me tell you, for others, you, you need to go on the offense and you need to get baptized. I talked to a dear friend two weeks ago. Him and I have known each other for the past year because we're in community group together. And I didn't know where he was at spiritually. I know he wasn't a Christ follower. And before he went to go to South Korea, I says, hey, listen, where are you at spiritually? And he said, you know what? Before I came to one church, I really didn't know anything about the
1: Bible or Jesus or anything like that. But yeah, after attending there, you probably don't know anything about Jesus or the Bible for real anyway, either.
5: Just a couple of months ago, I came down forward, and, I, and I, I prayed, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior. So I said, that's awesome. I'm starting to cry. I'm like a girl. I'm like, you know, and and and, and, I, and I'm asking him, you know, oh, are you going to get baptized? No. Why not? He says, well, if I get baptized, everybody's going to know that I'm a Christian. And I'm like, I know. That's the point. Baptism is you going public with your faith.
1: And what passage of Scripture says that? There isn't even one verse of Scripture that says baptism is going public with your faith. Not one.
5: All right? And then he says this. He says, well, then everybody will know I'm a Christian and I'm not perfect. And I said, I know, you're not. But you can be forgiven. And he says, okay, I'm going to get baptized. Now, my friend, he left last night to go to Korea. He wanted to get baptized today and he couldn't. So we did something very spiritual on Thursday night. We had a pool party. Look at this story. Watch this.
1: Grace,
3: what have you done? Unique
0: New York. Unique 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 New York. I'm my name is Scotty and this is my story started coming to One Church Easter Sunday, 2020, with my wife. I was deployed to Afghanistan when she found One Church for the first time.
4: Ever since I got back and I was dealing with some issues from the appointment being my first time, um, I came to One Church and they greeted me with open arms and always had the answers for me. I'm now on a flight to Korea for a year without my wife, and I just wanted to be able to publicly announce that I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I would like to thank a couple people in general who have helped me with my walk with God. Chris and Kim Edmondson, Dave Thompson, Jake Luna, my entire small group, and my, especially my wife, Nikki, for,
1: for never giving up on me. How was that? That was pretty good, actually. Better? It was better. All right. That's good. That's it? What? That's it? No. Nah. I'm
2: going to do one more take. Oh, come on. No, no listen. All if, right. If this next... Right.
5: Some of you in here, you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you've not taken that step to get baptized. My question I'm going to ask you, like I asked Scotty, is why not? I mean, that's that's what God has called us to do. It's so that everybody will know that you're going public. So why not? I mean, it's just, why not? Why not? You know for others of you, the how you can play offense and, and and stop playing defense is you can actually go and again you can start reading your Bible you can get baptized you can tell you can tell somebody else about jesus christ and I know it 's scary, but i 'm telling you it God will use you he will use you that 's what god 's word says he will use you and you 're going to be able to see uh where
1: where does it say that
5: see people just changed all around you and let me tell you even if nothing's changing inside of you god will change you you will start getting excited it's impossible not to for others of you some of you the best way you can go on offense is just to start giving you know and i know you say well if, if i give more then i'm going to have less No, no no you don't seem to understand god can do more with your 90 percent than you ever could with your 100 percent Last week we did our like test the tithe challenge and uh, my wife and I, we tithed over and above. We did an extra week's worth of of giving and we didn't, we're trying to, you know, how is this going to work? Let me just tell you, I don't know how it works for you. I'm going to tell you how it worked for me. Um, uh, So anyway, we kind of go through the rest of the week. My wife goes to a, um, to go get, to pay a bill at an optometrist. All right. By the way, we don't have any type of like eye coverage or anything. So we go and we go and we get the, my wife is getting glasses. and She's going to pay on them. And uh, she's, and the lady taking her money says, uh, you don't owe us anything. Well, I, it says right here, well, no, your, your insurance picked it up. <laughs> how, how often does that happen? <laughs> Never. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was for the exact amount that my wife wrote the check for. And I'm not saying it happens that way all the time. I'm just telling you that happened in our life this past week. I'm telling you, God, you, 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 want, a God, you want God to do something with your finances and your world that you got to start trusting him. Go on a mission trip. We got a bunch of our adults and youth going to be going to Puerto Rico in a couple of weeks. Come on now, shout out. Just saying, all right, God's going to use them. This is so cool. Our youth just got back from Mission Fuge and Ex fuge and, and, and I remember Joel told me this. One of the guys, um, we, we were going to like a camp at, at a beach somewhere before. And everybody was, when we told them we weren't going to go to that camp, everybody was just like, how dare you? We want to go to the beach and play volleyball, right? I mean, it's just fun. Well, this is what's so cool. One of the most outspoken guys. Uh, of, of not going back to that beach and doing this new thing. He actually came to Mission Fuge and the first day when he's hanging out with all these poor kids who know, have nothing, at church group devotions that night, he, this person said this, I would take the one day I spent here the entire week on the beach just doing this. Let me tell you, that is, that's living life on the edge. That's living God's will as a daring plan, not an insurance plan. Let me tell you, say this. Dads, how you can go and play offense is to actually pray with your kids at night. Some of you, you would storm the gates of uh, uh, Bagram with no, I mean, you're not worried about that. But praying with your children and your knees go like this. Or open up the Bible, but do that. It's not your wife's responsibility to teach him about the Bible. It's yours. So do that and just do it regularly and do it in little small chunks, but that's playing offense. So as I close, the band's gonna come out now. I'm, I'm just gonna, I wanna read you a story. Um, and it, this, it takes literally 30 seconds. So just hang out for a sec. But um Henry James once wrote a story entitled The Madonna of the Future. It was a story about an artist who devoted her entire life to a single painting. And when the artist died, it was discovered that the canvas was still blank. She never finished because she never started. So let me ask you your question. What is your unpainted canvas? What is the thing that God is calling you to do that you've not done because you're afraid? Is God bigger than your fear? Is God bigger than your fear? Yes, he is. So don't get at the end of your life having devoted your dreams to an empty canvas because you've never started what God has called you to start. Let's pray.
1: Dear God, done, done, <laughs> it ends on the right words. Dear God, what was that? Notice how much he added to the scriptures and didn't pay attention to what the text says. And he turned it, he made commands where there are none. Scripture commands pastors to only teach that which is in accord with sound doctrine. And you didn't hear any sound doctrine in the sermon. Something to think about. This is not God's will. This, with this sermon, well, what he did is the exact opposite of what God wills pastors to do. He didn't preach the scriptures. He didn't teach the word of God correctly. In fact, what you got was a bunch of slogans and and beat up because you're not being adventurous and daring enough. But God doesn't command that of you. But God does say to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and have the same faith that, well, Jonathan, David, moses elijah and the others had we can have that same faith and that's what god's will for us to do is to trust in him the same way that all those others did because they believed god and it was reckoned and credited to them as righteousness that's what it means to live by grace through faith so what'd you think love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you could do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the or you can follow me on uh, facebook uh, subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen